Hello and welcome to Pod and Market with your guest host, Don Mexlar. We have a very special episode today where I will be interviewing Manny Antunes, the normal host of Pod and Market. Manny, how are you? I'm fine. Uh, how are you? I am really well. I'm really excited to be doing this. Yeah, it's really weird for me because <laughs> I'm usually on the other end of these things and uh, it's going to be fun to have the tables turned, uh, almost literally. It's very Stephen Colbert of us to have the host be the be the subject of the interview. Yeah, very very meta. <laughs> um, well, I've never hosted a podcast before, so I'm really excited to uh, to try it and to see if I'm able to conjure something interesting from your mind and mouth today. Yeah, let's see how this goes. Well, I understand that this is a podcast about Newark, so. Since we both live in Newark, New Jersey, I think I may be able to direct your attention to a couple of things that I was thinking about talking about. Um, so, pod and market, reference to broad and market, the primary intersection of Newark, New Jersey. If uh, after broad and market, what's your favorite intersection in Newark, New Jersey? Oh, man. So... I, it has to be probably a couple of options. Um, I've Five Corners is always fascinating. Um, it's sort of, it's a weird spot on ferry, I think, for a long time. So Five Corners is where ferry splits off of Wilson, and it's kind of iconic. Cause is was, that where the church has lost its steeple? Uh it didn't, I don't know if it's – oh, are you t I think you're about to reference what I was going to talk about, which is it's iconic because it was used in Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, and the church um, – it doesn't so much blow up, but it kind of cracks. Um, and I remember when that was filmed because um, – unfortunately, she passed away, but my, my aunt um, was there with her son uh, during the filming and described what it was like to be there when they were doing it. And it's just so iconic because St. Stephen's, it's a Lutheran church that's uh, that's at the, the that intersection where Ferry splits into Wilson. Oh, so wait, why do you like that intersection? It's just it's it just has an iconicness to it. I, I it's it's also weird for me because when I was a child, Ferry kind of ended there for me. I never really went past there that often. It was very rare for me to go past there. Um, but as I got older. I kind of learned these kind of interesting pathways you could take. If you go down Wilson, it's a very different experience than going down what's basically ferry. Like it, it just continues as ferry street. And um, I've always, I've always found that like, is this the center point of the ironbound or is this like a terminus? And I've always had this kind of debate in my mind about what, you know, five corners is, is it this, is it a, is it an endpoint? Because I think a lot of people who visit the Ironbound don't go past Five Corners. So just hearing your answer yeah. and hearing you talk and hearing you talk outside of this conversation, it sounds like you imbue a lot of meaning to a lot of the space and places in the city of Newark. Why do you do that? Why do you like it so much? Why do I like the city so much? It's it's kind yeah. of weird. I, so this has been a, a really... Other than that you're yeah. from there. Right. So Newark, it was sort of like a fish in water, right? Like there's the old joke that, you know, uh, about water, like officials don't know what water is until you tell it what water is. And it was similar to me for Newark. So I never thought of Newark as a distinct thing until I left. Um, 
I went to boarding school at the age of 13 and um, I had been, I had been away from home for extended periods of time. Before that I had done some summer programs uh, in Maryland uh, when I was young, where I would stay for the summer. Um, it was sort of like a nerd camp. Uh, a couple of my friends I grew up with um, in college also had done a similar program. And it's when you leave Newark that you start realizing what Newark is. It's 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 very strange when you're in it. You don't. It's just it is. It's just what is it? I, well, that's hard. I mean, that's that's why I said, that's why I just call it an it because it's no. It's really hard to describe what I'll it try. is. Um, well, here let me let me explain something about it. So when I left for boarding school, I started hearing how people described Newark. And I knew about Newark's problems. I knew about the economic, um, the sort of economic uh, disadvantages it faced. Um, I knew about its, you know, sort of semi-glorious past. But it was when I went and lived abroad, for lack of a better term, is when I was told what all the sort of cultural baggage this country places upon the city. And... For me, that became like, uh, not for me, so for people interacting with me, that became like an interesting aspect of my personality that like he was from this city, therefore he has some kind of something to say about it or some kind of unique aspect to himself. So there's this kind of interesting point in my boarding school experience where my senior year, um, it's a, a select number of seniors get to give what's called a chapel speech. And it's about like probably 10 or 20 out of the class who get to do it. Um, and I gave my chapel speech on Newark, and it was sort of expected that I would do this because I was a sort of like ambassador from a foreign land. <laughs> um, and I kind of embraced that personality because it allowed me to be somewhat unique. And I carry that into to college, and that kind of burrowed its way into my brain, and I kind of felt this obligation to come back. I mean, this is the hard part about me in Newark. It's like, uh, it's a city that I do love, and I do want to be here, but I also realize I, um, I'm i a bit of an odd duck here. I don't quite fit in, in a way that, um, um, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the average New Yorker, for sure. Um, yeah. My guest today is Manny Antunes, the host of this podcast, and I'm turning the tables on him and interviewing him on his own podcast. Manny, it sounds like when you left Newark, you learned a lot about the place that you'd grown up, and you also learned a lot about yourself. I think a lot of people might agree that when they leave the place they grow up, or when they see themselves reflected from other people, or see where they're from reflected from other people's reaction, they can see themselves, maybe for the first time. Does that does that kind of match what what you're saying? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I would even go a step further and say um, sometimes when you leave, um, it's not that you just see yourself, but other aspects of your personality are grafted onto you that may have not even been there to begin with. And I think that's what I'm trying to s- explain. It's like I said, I, I never had this particular affinity, affinity for Newark until I left it. Um, and then I, as I was in these different places, whether it was Boston, uh, you know, I was in London briefly, uh, New York City, where I stayed for three years. Um, that's when my Newark identity actually started cohering and coalescing in a way that it didn't beforehand. When I was very young, I didn't identify as a Newarker per se. I would only identify in the sense that, like, yes, this is my city of, of residence. 
but then it became a part of my identity once I was around people who weren't from here, people who had never even been here but had heard about the place. Identity is a funny thing, right? Yeah. It's kind of given to us by other people, maybe even more than by ourselves. We sort of just react to what other people tell us they think about us. But the thing that strikes me is you came back to the city that you grew up in. You lived, you live here now. You've lived here for quite a while. I, my sense is that people either flee with all due speed from the place they grew up, never to return, or find themselves constantly coming back to that place, maybe constantly trying to recapture something that they remember, maybe even a nostalgia. Is that part of it for you? Yeah, uh, one would argue it's a form of, of arrested development. <laughs> like, it, it, But I think you're right. It's, it's weird. I... I don't quite understand why I'm attracted to this place. I think a little bit has to do with the fact that you do get to, um, it is a bit of a tabula rasa for a lot of people. So you do get to craft your own identity here. It's not like New York where you can just disappear. Um, or even if you try to be a something in New York, it's just so hard because there's you know so many other people doing so many other things. It's very unlikely that you'll stand out in what you're doing. Um, and Newark's a little bit different because it's just small enough. I mean, it's still a, a large city. It's, I mean, like the population of Newark, even though it hasn't hit its pre, um, its pre uh, um, uh, 1967 uh, population, we're still larger than Athens was at the height of the great era of its democracy, right? And so, you know, it, it's kind of fascinating to think that we're we're still huge. It's a huge city, but at the same time, it's small enough that you constantly run into people. Well, not to quibble with 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 comparative populations, but yeah. probably the state of New Jersey currently has more people in it than all of Europe did at the height of Athens. So, uh, actually, no. The, uh, this is actually a funny. Thing. So, Europe probably had at that time uh, tens of millions of people. Which I mean, New Jersey's I think only eight or nine. I think um, not to quibble that much, but like it is kind of interesting that. Um, uh, the reason why I compare to Athens is because we think of, like, obviously Athens wasn't a pure democracy, but it was one where uh, the franchise was much widely, more widely shared than anything would be for even another 1,500, 2,000 years. Um, and Newark is, in a sense, that kind of forum because everyone kind of knows each other. Like, you know, these, um, you're never more than, like, one circle removed from another person's friend circle in Newark in a way that in New York city, you get these enclaves and these kind of um, separate communities and, and that have almost nothing to do yeah. with each other. And Newark is uniquely insular. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, literally like an Island that the, the people that live in Newark often find themselves interacting. Just I'm talking about myself mm -hmm. with other people that live in Newark and you don't go to the surrounding towns in New Jersey very much or have much to do with those places in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that is partly due to geography and partly due to, um, due to public transportation. A, a good example of this is uh, Hoboken. I mean, Hoboken is only a place I've discovered in my twenties. Um, despite having spent, like obviously I went to boarding school, but I was here in the summers. Um, 
like I just never had gone to Hoboken. Never, never. This is the plight of everybody yeah. from New Jersey: is that you you don't leave your county. You, I grew up in Monmouth County, and I I never came to Essex County as a youth for any reason whatsoever. But maybe that has something to do with it. But I want to turn back to 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 you and a little bit more about your background. So your your family is Portuguese, right? Yep. How does that play into your identity as a Newarker? Is it Portuguese American, Portuguese Newarker? Mm. What what what? How does that play into your identity? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I, the, I'm a weird kind of Portuguese in this town for a couple of reasons. So first, um, I uh, so when I often get asked. Or if someone makes a connection that I'm from Newark and that I'm Portuguese, they inevitably think I grew up in the Ironbound. Um, and they kind of forget that the, the Portuguese in Newark actually reside in two areas, although obviously the Ironbound is the biggest. Uh, but there are quite a few up in North Newark, enough to have its own Portuguese club and enough to have Portuguese mass at, I think, two or three churches up in, the, in, the North, in North Newark. Um, obviously, those populations have shrunk as the sort of this wave of Portuguese immigration has kind of dwindled. Um, and as uh, the next generation grows up, they've moved out to either Union, Hillside, the suburbs, you know, Belleville, whatever, um, or even further abroad. And North, North Carolina is weirdly this new popular place to move to for Portuguese Americans. But so that's one weird aspect is like, I think they think I grew up in the, in the East Ward, but I actually grew up in the old Italian area of Newark, um, you know, sort of made famous by The Sopranos, uh, the TV show. But the other aspect that's weird about it is... My, neither, as opposed to the group of opera singers. Yes, as opposed to... <laughs> yes. Um, but the weird thing about also being Portuguese in Newark is neither one of my parents uh, grew up in Newark as Portuguese immigrants. Uh, my dad grew up in Soho um, on Sullivan Street between Prince and Spring, which has a small Portuguese community there. And so it's a very different Portuguese uh, experience. And my mother grew up in Rockland County. Um, and so I don't even have the, like those tight ties to to the Portuguese of Newark because most of those Portuguese of Newark, their, their first experience of living in this country is Newark. And I just have this totally different experience and like my uncles sound like new yorkers and behave like new yorkers it's it's actually really funny and uh, my mom's siblings her particularly her younger ones were so young when they came here that they are like they they don't really have many portuguese attributes i mean they do speak the language but they're um they're through and through americans culturally um so i never is really that what you go by manny uh, pretty much. I mean, a lot of Portuguese people actually adopt American names. Uh, this is like, uh, we were kind of unique. So I, um, so all my friends uh, who were born here that are Portuguese that I grew up with have Americanized names and are my parents, for better or for worse, um, went with like very identifiably Portuguese names. So an example is like my, my legal birth name is Manuel. My brother's is Miguel. Um, but all the friends Does who grew up. Does anybody call you Manuel? Yes, but I just cringe when I hear it. I really hate it. Who? What? I just who calls like. You that? Well, so when someone reads my, like, they don't know who I am, and they they see. Um, oh. Or like, nobody that knows you. Well, the the one exception would be uh, some Portuguese people who just uh, struggle with saying the word Manny, so they'll say Manel, 
um, or um, like teachers. So I didn't go by Manny in um, elementary school. It was more of a high school thing. So uh, it was Manuel, which is, they gave it the extra emphasis on the U. Um, and so I still get, like, if I run into those old teachers, they'll still call me that. Um, but all the friends I grew up with, um, they, like, they had the names, like, Stephanie and Richard. And uh, those are, like, two popular ones. Richard and, and Stephanie were super popular among the kids who were born in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but we had these, like, identifiably Portuguese names, which is not that common. Um, and it was a bit of the inverse because a lot of those parents, both my parents speak English, but um, a lot of their parents really struggled with English. And I found that very funny that they were almost trying to prove their Americanness um, mm -hmm. by giving them names that still worked in Portuguese. You could say them kind of easily with a Portuguese accent, but were not um, common at all in Portugal. Let, let me, I want to shift focus a little bit and ask you, uh, th this was a question suggested to me that I should ask you. Mm -hmm. So if you could found a school, college, or institution in Newark, mm -hmm. what would its focus be? Yeah. Oh, so the funny thing is, I don't know who asked you to ask me this because I've thought about this. I don't think I've ever shared this with anyone, though. Um, but I, I've always thought, like, if I had the sort of endowment to start a school, where would it be? And or, or what would its focus on be, too? Um and I think the focus for me would be on um, the uh, a particular focus on on what are called the humanities. I, I want a better term because humanities is so vague, but on writing and um, the aspects of. I find that w when I was a teacher, I found that there was a lot of emphasis on STEAM. Um, STEAM standing for science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Arts was in, it used to be called STEM. They added arts because I think the arts. Is long suffering, and I and I totally believe it is a long suffering field. I feel, um, like, I feel like the A kind of defeats what the STEM is supposed to be about, though, isn't it? Yeah, arts is a whole other thing. But go on. Well, I mean, I've never very, heard STEAM. Yeah. So the, the irony, just a quick uh, side note about Latin. Um, art in Latin means skill. It's technos in Greek, actually. So it used like to be an that artisan. Yeah, an artisan. Yeah, and so it used to be that arts specifically focused on craft, and not necessarily on the yeah on the theoretical aspects of art. Mm -hmm. But um, there's such a focus on it, and, and this is a national problem, it's not just Newark, um, that I think we've forgotten about rhetoric, we've forgotten about history, we've forgotten about um, civic education. Mm -hmm. So I was always wanted to found a school that was focused on the written word, um, and, not in, not, I don't, and I don't mean poetry and creative writing, but I also mean like um, a deep focus on expository writing, on speaking, on persuasion, um, it'd are, be you, are you one of those people that thinks that if you can't write it clearly, then you you aren't thinking clearly? I don't. I wouldn't go that far because I, I guess could, that's a bit of an Orwell thing that yeah that that as language degrades, thought degrades. Right, and I just I, I didn't want to go that far because I feel like there's some people who can express a good example is like art. Right, there are people who've expressed very deep and complex. Uh, con um, um, concepts through nonverbal means or minimally verbal means. So song, well, songs are very interesting in that Let sense. me say it this way. If you're choosing the written word to express yourself, mm. set aside music, visual arts, dance, whatever, I think, I think we'd agree that you can express yourself clearly using those things as well. 
But if you're choosing the written word, if the written word is not expressing the idea well enough, then maybe the idea is not uh, fully baked in the oven yet. That's that's sort of the, the right. question I have to you. If you agree with that, yeah, and and that's why I'm pu- what I'm pushing back against because I think um, that presumes a one to one correlation between thought and its verbal expression, which may not be true. Uh, thought, I, I think it may be true that thought is bigger than the words that um, that express it. Yeah, uh, I don't get I too Wittgensteinian. Yeah, and I don't want to get too Wittgensteinian here. <laughs> like, I'd say, I'd say, and then words are way bigger than written words. You just, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you look at, there's what, like 5,000 languages in the world and only 200 of them have an alphabet. Right. Something, there's some, I'm getting those numbers wrong, but it's, mm-hmm. that's, that's basically the ratio if I understand it. So that suggests that human beings are able to express themselves pretty elaborately right. without writing things down. But that said, I think the point I'm trying to make if I'm trying to make a point, this is me interviewing you, but is that in in a written culture where written language is a massive part of our daily life, mm-hmm. I think the point you're trying to make is being able to articulate ideas in both written word and using, I guess, old-fashioned rhetorical ideas, logic, is is essential. Yeah, uh, and I th- it's also a couple other things too. So uh, going back to the school idea, the school would have a deep focus on the arts around the written word. It would also have some like things that just don't get as big of a um, they don't get as much funding here. But like you know, like classes on playwriting and on theater. Obviously, there's arts high, but the performing arts there, you know, is 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 uh, much broader. Um, but it, it would be sort of like, it would be a little bit of recreating my boarding school experience, but with a little more of a social justice flair. Um, mm-hmm. I also love esoterica. And I think there's no, I, I think there's a deep fear about exposing newer kids to like, I always found this a, st- a stupid way of approaching kids from Newark as if they're not interested in things that are not connected to their lives. I, mean, I grew up around a lot of kids who were too deeply fascinated by things. I mean, like the amount of people in Newark that I grew up with that were entranced by manga, which has no connection <laughs> to living in a city like Newark. Yeah, that um, doesn't make sense because it's just my own experience as a kid, yeah. not growing up in Newark, but growing up in a place that you know, just a random place in New Jersey was I was deeply interested specifically in things not connected to my life. Mm-hmm. I I think a lot of people, a lot of young people especially, are fascinated by what is out there right. and what they haven't experienced yet. Yeah, and this frustrated me when I was a teacher because I think a lot of academic theory has gotten this wrong. Uh, so, sorry, not, I don't want to say academic. Uh, pedagogical theory has always been this giant focus on like connecting things to the kids own experience because otherwise they tune out and like i understand there should be some aspect of like let's celebrate your own culture let's celebrate something that is deeply tied to your identity but at the same time like you have to learn about the outside world and like oftentimes i find kids were like the 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 class i had kids most entranced and and paid attention the most was when i described them japanese feudal society um you know this a very rigid hierarchical structure um, that has absolutely no connection. Well, it has a historical connection to the present, but it, it has no connection to the way we operate 
our society right now, but it was a portal into a different world, a world where um, obviously you could do some LARPing into in your own mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bit of an oxymoron. Um, it's got swords. Yeah, it's got swords. It's got samurai, but it's also got, you know, like um, artisans. Oh, and the honor code. I mean, what yeah. you're saying is structured, rigid, hierarchical. Right. Kids love that stuff. Yeah. Kids love rules the world over. Right. Or, or better yet, they love um, constructed worlds. Which arguably, yeah. one, one could argue that any society is a constructed world, which you know, I think is true. So what would the school be called? I don't know. I, I always wanted to call it the like Lyceum or give it some kind of classical name because I think... I was uh, going to call it the Lyceum. Yeah. I, but the problem with the Lyceum is associated with Aristotle, and I don't like Aristotle as a philosopher. And the problem is acad- uh, the academy is overused, but that's you know Plato's... Uh, uh, school, but it would be something along those lines, and maybe it would just be called the like Newark School. I've always liked. I, I'm a big fan of simple titles. I, mm-hmm. I've gotten pushback about this. Like when I describe my my job title, I often I like to just say researcher, but like people are very much title focused because it often expresses where you are in the hierarchy and and it brings a sense of legitimacy. But I love the idea of describing myself as a writer or a creative, as opposed to like you know the assistant regional whatever to x and so it's I like, like the, it's like how people in their yeah. in their twitter bio put like mom yogi yeah. <laughs> dog lover in that order yes you could put assistant regional manager of sales right comma father in that order well it used to be i mean that <laughs> was a joke no i know i know but the funny thing is it used to be that like titles were were something with dash er right you were a tanner a painter, um, a merchant, right? And like, we never had the concept of like these long drawn out titles. But the way this connects back to the schools, the school would have, I, I would have such a preference for a simple name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like, it, it would be a place, I, I would be free of tuition. It would be a place where it would try to get a cross section of New York society. But it would also be somewhere far removed from a lot of places. So I like the idea of putting it not in the center of downtown, but maybe like mm. far in North Newark in a, a sort of empty old factory area um, mm. that's kind of isolated to give it a sense of separateness from the world, which I like. Today on Pod and Market, we are turning the tables and interviewing Manny Antunes, the future founder of the Newark School. My <laughs> name's Don Mexlar, and I'm interviewing him because I thought it might be fun. I want to ask you about um, about mass transit now. Yes, yes. If you could, if you could put a new train station, mm-hmm. whether it's NJ Transit, Path, Light Rail, whatever, if you could put one new train station in the city of Newark. Where would it be, and why would it be up by Branchbrook Park? <laughs> no here's the thing actually um my first thought um and this is actually a legitimate argument that's going on right now so it's not like i'm stepping in with something new here it's south- i guess i there obviously yeah. are two light rail stations on right. branchbrook park so we probably don't need one up there but you're talking more of a penn station kind of or broad street station style station right well you tell me so south street there's been a big debate about what to do about south street and i think uh, putting a station on south street is key to just totally for, for listeners that don't know yeah. tell us where south street is yeah so so south street is um it's 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 in a southern part of newark haha um it's along well so south street runs east west but um there's a point where it crosses um 
the the tracks that are um, the New Jersey Transit Amtrak lines, but they also it has a huge like ramp, right? Yes, it goes up in the air and actually has a really cool yes vista and drives you over to the Amazon warehouse. I know because I had to return something to the Amazon warehouse and I drove down South Street, which by the way is kind of mayhem to drive yes, on South Street because there's cars parallel parked, hidden parked, diagonal parked, all on the same street. It's wild. So South Street, um, it's uh, that whole area also is where they store the PATH trains before they come back uh, into Penn Station and they go back on the, the normal routes. And the funny thing is, uh, rumor has it that that was a stop for NJ Transit, or, or I guess what would have been the Morris, not that it couldn't have been the Morris Exus line because it goes the other way, whatever the line that used to run south was. And before the before NJ Transit in 1970, I think it was, uh, um, na- uh, it's not nationalization, but statification, statified the all the rail lines in, in New Jersey, and um, that used to be a stop at one point, and I think it was just eliminated because, you know, people like the the only concern the trains had was getting people in and out of Newark, you know, hashtag Gateway Center, right, um, and to put a stop there would activate. I hate that word. Let me use a different one. Um, it would sort of provide a place for entry and exit around that area, very close to Gill's Distillery. Gill's a mutual friend of ours. You know, he's been on this podcast. Um, but it would also allow Lincoln Park. The All Points West Distillery. Yeah, the All Points West Distillery. It would also allow an access point to Lincoln Park, which is a long-suffering, beautiful area of Newark that has really mm-hmm. – um, has really tried hard to become this kind of nexus uh, for activity, but struggles because it's just so far removed from downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, And not saying that there's anything going on there that far from it, but um, it's not a place where outsiders of Newark go to. And like the health of Newark is going to be driven by a healthy mix of residents and outsiders. And Lincoln park has just not had that opportunity. So why not put a train station in Lincoln Park or light rail there? Oh, I guess I'm just I'm just working on already existing infrastructure. But if like if I had the world, no, I, I've given you more power than yeah. that. Well, if you I have more power, place it wherever. If I had more power than that, then it would move more even more centrally in Newark. I mean, arguably somewhere near Nat Turner Park, or you know, maybe up by um, uh, up by where Springfield splits off from South Orange or wherever that area is, or um, literally anywhere in the West Ward. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, you're right. Um, west or south, but I guess because the southward already has the m- massive highways that barrel through mm-hmm. it. The yeah. westward, all the westward has is South Orange Avenue, um, which Have you is heard of the Garden State Parkway. Uh, well, yeah, but that but that actually only that only goes through the westward for I think it's an eighth of a mile because it cuts <laughs> through the Ivy Hill or it's actually really Valesburg at that point, the Valesburg section. But the mm-hmm. funny thing is about South Orange Avenue, now that it comes up, it's um, if I ever had the chance with a car to take an outsider around Newark, one of my favorite things to do to show them what New Jersey is, is to, drive, to drive them up. South Orange yeah, Avenue. to drive South Orange Avenue because you see all of basically what Jersey is, which is, you know, blighted urban decay, gated communities, and then like almost rural mountains when you get to the part where it uh it hits you know past south orange station in you south go orange. past it goes yeah. through valesburg right it goes through ivy hill Val, valesburg south orange and then up Out into, in valesburg the street lamps start getting a little bit nicer and yep. then you cross the border and then the street lamps are literally made of right like copper and 
there's a man that probably lights them and and there's a mm-hmm. penny farthing bicycle but you can actually s- you can see um economic transformation in real time yeah right in a way it's that block by block yeah and and it's when I say there's a gated community next to a project, I am not joking. Like you will see that it's right past this massive church that's in at the sort of edge of Ivy Hill. Hill, but um, there's like a sort of abandoned um, a public housing site, and then the very next block, it's uh, you're in Seen Hall territory. It's this kind, of, kind of leads me to my to my next question. There's that famous. New Yorker cover from mm. like the eighties or nineties or whatever it was that has like New York city, Hudson river, Jersey, America, or like California is the next thing. And I kind of think something along those lines when I look West over Newark, that it's sort of the first city of the country up here in this part of the country, or maybe the last, the last part of the city of New York City. And I was wondering what you think about what Newark is part of. Is it part of New Jersey? Is it part of New York City? Is it both probably? Is it everything? What's its place? Yeah, so um, if we just focus on... So if we just focus on New Jersey, Newark has this kind of weird existence within the state. Um, for better or for worse, Jersey politics. Sort of a blind spot. Yeah, but for better or for worse, Jersey state politics, um, not county level, not city level, but Jersey state politics is dominated by the suburbs. They absolutely control the state. Um, yes, there's some, um, there's some, um, there's a little bit of uh, power vested in certain urban um, power leaders. Yes, there's some rural interests that are represented as well, but the dominant power, and you can just look at it by the who's been elected governor um, for the past century, <laughs> these are people tied to um, suburban professional interests. Um, you know, we have yet to see a farmer in the last 50 years elected governor. We have yet to see an urban politician elected governor, and it's probably not going to happen. And this is actually why I think uh, marijuana legalization completely collapsed in January. This state voted overwhelmingly in November to legalize marijuana, and it still hasn't happened in the state legislature because the suburban interests, and I will say this outright, the suburban interests do not want it to happen for reasons that are unclear to me as well, because it, I, I don't understand where the moral panic is coming from, mm-hmm. um, because I think the suburbs have definitely changed on how they feel about weed, mostly because a lot of these parents living in the suburbs have partaken in such substances and are much less afraid of it. But um, but it just shows you the power structure in the in the state assembly and the state senate and in the governorship that these interests are overweighted. Now, why is well, that? Well, it's ma- a state. It's just go, tell us why that matters. No, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, so so why it matters is um, it means that a lot of policy is directed around um, things that are prioritized by suburbs and economic development as viewed from a suburban point of view. Um, now, some places are exempt from this. So Jersey City and Hoboken are kind of exceptions to this rule because those are dominated by young moneyed interests that uh, are able to fund their own redevelopment. Well, I'd argue that they're also part of New York City far more than they're part of New Jersey. And True. I think the it's not really the counter argument to your point, but the reason why what you're saying is true is because most of New Jersey exists in contrast to the two giant cities that border it. And 
it presents itself as if you don't want to live in those cities anymore, and it's and it's presented itself this way for a hundred years. If you don't want to live in those cities anymore, come to New Jersey. So it's not really surprising that a state that I don't know what the percentage are, but I would guess it's a majority of the state residents are suburban residents mm-hmm. that it it sort of sells itself as a suburban state but that clearly does the cities of Newark excuse me the cities of New Jersey <laughs> it does the cities of New Jersey a huge injustice cuz right. the s- suburbanites don't want much to do with cities whether they're New York City or Patterson or mm. Newark or whatever well, the fu- and the funny thing about New Jersey is um, it used to be that it's cities and it's like sort of the great six, right? So it's Cam- I think the great six are Camden, Trenton, Newark, Patterson, Passaic, and oh, I'm missing one more. It may have been Edison or something, but um, Atlantic City, I guess, arguably. But like the, the sort of, you know, the, the big six cities, um, they operated independently economically of New York until the arguably the 60s or the 50s because they were industrial powerhouses. But as deindustrialization happens to the Northeast, uh, whether the factories move to the Midwest and then the South or uh, out to China, India, um, Vietnam, you know, wherever, um, they're kind of left adrift because um, they have to then fill in the gap with professional services. But the problem is at that same time that factories are moving out of the city, um, professional services are also moving out of the city, except they're moving into the suburbs or they're concentrating themselves in, in metropolises like New York and like Philly. And so all of a sudden Newark finds itself without a shovel, right? Mm-hmm. And has to turn to New York City. It, it's no coincidence that the path really comes online in 1960, I think it is, mm-hmm. that a direct connection between, a direct commuter connection between New York and Newark is well, established at that point. I don't know anything about the development of the PATH train, but it seems to me that whoever developed the PATH train was thinking, Newark's just part of New York City. We should have a subway that goes there too, and to Jersey City. The people that live there want to commute to go to their job in New York City the way someone from Brooklyn would. And that's in contrast to whoever developed the train system that became the commuter rail of New Jersey Transit, which the, which was a much more suburban-minded train system that has stopped every in every town. Except, versus, except on the weekends, <laughs> as, we, as right. we learned, right? <laughs> well, because it's a commuter rail. Right, it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not a full-service subway the way the path or even the light rail is for that matter. I mean, just to run with that point though, I'm glad you brought it up. Like just to show you what this state is, um, two things will show you exactly where power rests in the state. So first is that there is no train access to Garden State Plaza and it's closed on Sundays, which is removing a day of shopping from a lot of urban workers. Like a, you can't get there and B you're not allowed to shop here on one of your days off. The other fascinating thing about the train is um, there's no train access to Montclair past Bay Street on the weekends. Because exactly this point, right, of like, they control the sub, uh, this, um, the uh, the mass transit. And it's not just that they're like, well, there's not enough people using it, is they actively don't want people visiting their towns 
from the city on the weekend. It's just like it's it's just it's a subconscious expression, maybe even overt. I don't know. So let's continue to live in the world of fantasy a little bit. Would you be in favor of Newark annexing Belleville, East Orange, Bloomfield, West Orange, Glen Ridge, Montclair? Yes, and the oranges. So make itself the city of Greater Newark, which is basically (laughs) the eastern half of Essex County, and go from two hundred and 80,000 to 500,000. Yeah. yeah. So, yes and no. So, A, uh, so the yes. Okay, so why allow this to happen? So, um, A, it would allow allow for greater redistribution. B, it also just makes sense. Like, it'd be great to just, like, cut the overhead on cops (laughs) across all these jurisdictions. Like, East Newark has its own police department. Now, granted, we couldn't take over East Newark because it's a different county. But, like, you walk to East Newark, and they have like a full police station it's a town you can walk in five minutes by foot i've done it um a town whose economy is primarily tops diner is a diner is driven by one diner <laughs> which is insane if you think about it um, um although they used to have clark thread argue so they did have a factory there but um but if you got all these towns in you would cut, a, cut across a lot of overhead um you would allow for some great redistribution um you would even create a sense of identity, which would be important. I meant like New York City, yes, Brooklyn and Bronx, may, or better yet, let's say um, Queens and Staten Island might as well be on different planets. Um, but there is a shared sense of identity that both are New Yorkers. Um, in Newark, we, you know, it would be great to have Essex County think of itself as like, uh, and it does like to an extent, but like if we thought of Newark as a unit, like with all these other like different areas, um, it'd be kind of great to create this sort of diversity in political thought and diversity in, um, in, um, uh, it also, it would create more equity. So like, I like the idea that like the suburban voters would check the urban voters and the urban voters would also check the suburban voters in this new political unit. Now you'd have to carefully balance that because you can't have one group being two more powerful than the other. Um, it's part of the, the part of the reason why these towns broke off is they did not want to be controlled by Newark. Um, uh, but it would be great to like prevent like, you know, um, for a good example is COVID policy, right? Why did Newark's COVID policy fail? And I'll argue that it did fail. It's simply because, yes, Newark could shut down its liquor stores, but Belleville didn't shut them down. Mm-hmm. And all you've done is drive Newark and uh, drive uh, business that was occurring in Newark into Belleville for no, with no discernible purpose, because it didn't even prevent the spread of the disease. Because the people in Newark were just going to these other places. It wasn't like they were not catching the disease outside of Newark. Um, and but here's the other reason why I don't like the idea of expanding Newark's borders. Um, first of all. Um, you can get uh, the suburban interests get too powerful and they just start dominating Newark interests and they just destroy Newark. Uh, but the other reason is it, beca- it could become unwieldy as a political matter. Um, you could just, it's just, it's just too big. It's too geographically diverse. Um, these places are not connected to each other except for some highways, but like, you know, to get from downtown Newark to Montclair is a 30 minute journey um, where you mm-hmm. cross a whole slew of differing, things uh well when that new light rail starts going up bloomfield avenue yeah take a lot less time Um, let me let me since we're running out of time let me uh ask you my last substantive question and then we'll we'll wrap up if you could interview somebody from newark's past 
maybe someone who's no longer with us, who would it be? Um, I'll give you like three people because I think they're for very, three very different reasons. So um, Aaron Burr, um, he's just a deeply, fa- I was deeply fascinated by him before Hamilton came out. And he was born here in Newark, uh, grew up here, between here and Elizabeth. I think he went to high school in Elizabeth. Um, but he's just deeply fascinating because um, he came from an illustrious family. He's um, he's just sort of this maligned figure from history. I mean, the musical kind of gets into this. Um, and granted, he did some crazy things. I mean, aside from shooting Hamilton, which is a bit... Um, <laughs> aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? Uh, but, you know, he, he led a weird attempt to conquer Texas from Mexico that failed. It's actually the reason why he put, he was never, he was never charged or put on trial for the death of Hamilton, but he was charged with treason for this like crazy thing that he did after that. Didn't he become like a, a, a gambler? Yeah. Uh, playboy scum like Lando Calrissian or something. A sort of, yeah, he was he, the, 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 here's in Paris, the, right? Not in Paris. No, he never left the country. Um, it, it was he was here, but or he's, New Orleans. He was um he was actually you're gonna this is gonna blow your mind. The term for what he did was called filibustering. Hmm. <laughs> so filibustering used to refer to the act of going into like foreign countries and just like wrecking their governments. Um, and it was it was a Western Hemisphere term. So the idea was it was Americans going into like Latin American countries and just like taking over their governments and then like wrecking them um, with the intent of like wealth extraction. And he was kind of doing that with Texas. Um, this is before Texas independence. Um, it's just a really you want weird to ask story. Aaron Burr all about this. All about this, but also like, how did he feel did about? Did he Newark? identify as a person from Newark? Not. He would have said so. I mean, he was from New Jersey royalty, but he did represent the state of New York. And at the time, um, you know, New York was the bigger. It, it still is the bigger fish. But here's the funny thing. Another thing I would ask him about is uh, him and Hamilton went to high school together briefly. Um, and this is never really talked about Where? much in Elizabeth. There's this academy oh, they in Elizabeth. It Elizabeth Town. Then. They call it Elizabeth Town. There was an academy in Elizabeth, and both of them briefly attended. And I think they overlapped, from what I can see in the record. Um, you can model your the, the Newark school after the academy that they yeah, went to exactly, and just have people. <laughs> these so we don't go. So we, so we don't go too long. Who's yeah. the other two? Um, so another one, Stephen Crane. He did identify a little bit as a New Yorker. Um, Who's Stephen Crane? He was a writer um, from the end of the 19th century. I, he lived a little bit into the early 20th. Um, he died very young. He died of, I think it's TB. It was some lung disease. He was always What's sick. What's he known for? He's known, forgive my ignorance. No, it's fine. He was. Uh, he's known for... Um, Nowadays, he's known for the Red Badge of Courage, which is his famous uh, young adult uh, novel oh, about course. the Civil War. I, did, I don't think I knew the name of the author of that book. Yeah, he cut his teeth on um, on he was a, he was a journalist essentially, Such but he's a weird phrase. Yeah, he um he so both Ralph Ellison and Ernest Hemingway credit him with creating Amer him and Mark Twain. Um, creating an American sound in so it used to be Nathan like the, it was always a Nathaniel Hawthorne problem, right? Mm-hmm. Of like Americans tried to sound like British writers mm-hmm. and succeeded or failed to a certain extent. Um, you know, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, good example of great success in that field, right? Um, but Hawthorne, arguably, really unreadable. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people would probably not know that Edgar Allan Poe was American. Yeah, because of the way he he writes, right? It's a very European style it's, of writing. It's basically the highlight of the NFL that the Baltimore sports team decided to name themselves after Edgar Allan Poe's 
Poe the Raven. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, so that's it's crazy how much Baltimore culture is centered around Edgar Allan Poe, a city that he lived in for one year and just happened to die in. <laughs> Well, just Baltimore's got the right idea. Yeah, I guess so. You know, embrace embrace your cultural identity with this one person. Um, that and the wire, so I guess. Do, you would do Crane, and who's the third? The third, um, maybe Amiri Baraka. Um, but I'd have to read more of his work, though. Um, mm-hmm. Just because he's probably the most identifiable person with the city. Not not um, Jerry Gant? Oh, I guess Jerry Gant would be good, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Manny, we're about out of time, mm-hmm. but I think there's a final question that you told me to ask you. <laughs> so I'll ask you, but I think it's something like, what book are you reading right now? No, it's uh, what am I excited for? <laughs> <laughs> what are you excited for yeah, about this, uh, yeah, happening in Newark coming up? Yeah, this is not the Ezra Klein show. <laughs> um, thank God it's not. Thank God it's what, not. What are you excited for? In um, so I am excited for spring coming. Um, we are currently buried in endless snow. I never thought I would see endless snow as a problem, mostly because we don't get snow days anymore. So. I just pretend that I live in Sweden and... It makes it kind of mystical and yeah, and uh, bearable. Yeah, so I just I kind of can't wait till spring rolls around because that means I can walk long distances again. How about you? What are you excited for? Um, that's a great question. What am I excited for? Um, I that's really hard to hard to answer. I think I'm excited for the same, just because most of my socializing, as with the rest of the world of people who are semi-responsible during COVID has been outside in parks, in people's backyards. And I'm willing to do that if it's cold, but having a foot of snow is sort of like the barrier to outdoor socializing. So that will be nice. Um, I think like all of the world, Hmm. I'm looking forward to hopefully getting some vaccine in me soon, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll try to see if I can order some Russian vaccine off the internet or something. Nice, <laughs> freshly made in Novosibirsk. <laughs> yeah, um, Manny, this has been a real pleasure oh, to a lot interview of fun. you on your show. If ever you want me to come on and interview you again, or just want to chat, give me a call. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and now I'm going to steal back my show for the credits. <laughs> Please, it's back. Um, that's it for this episode. I want to thank our um, our host, uh, Don Mexlar. Uh, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pod and Market Podcast, and guest for this episode. Editing and sound engineering by Bob Freis. Uh, podcast and logo design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Cateas. We have a Patreon, which you can find on our website if you'd like to support the podcast. We also have some merchandise available for purchase. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And so I'm going to end with a book quote, as I always do. Um, and I'm actually reading right now, We Keep the Dead Close, uh, A Murder at ha- Harvard in a Half Century of Silence. Uh, it's by someone I think I met while I was an undergrad named Becky Cooper. Um she uh, became, while she was an undergrad, obsessed, or really, it actually, I think, started really when she left, um, obsessed with this murder that occurred at um, 
at Harvard in 1969, where uh, an archaeology grad student was uh, found dead in her apartment, um, really next, like her apartment, which is off campus, but right next to campus. And um, it's a really cool book because it's more about the journey than the pure true crime aspects of it. There's a lot of her own life buried into this, um, into this exploration of this murder. Um, and the great thing is each, um, she actually ends up interviewing each of the suspects that she's identified. And it's just really fun because, um, it's, I don't think I've ever seen a true crime book like this where every one of these suspects is like directly confronted. Um, and they're just so blase about this murder. (laughs) It's just really great. Um, but uh, no, they're not blase. They care. They really like this person or they like, you know, they try to prove a lot that they, you know, that they weren't the person who killed her. Um, and she was definitely murdered. It was not one of those questions of whether it was an accident or a murder. Um, but she's also, Becky, who who did this um, book, is a really great writer. Um, and so I'm just going to read a little quote right here from it. In the days following Jane's death, Carl got a call from Franklin Ford, Dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Dean Ford offered Harvard's full support without reservation. Half a century later, Carl would recount the story to me at our first official interview, grinning over the plateful of chicken liver he'd just ordered. He didn't even ask me if I did it. Thank you. <laughs>